I was here this morning and uh, just had a time of worship and we were uh, singing the old hymns and just listening to how blessed we are um, to have the folks that lead us in music and how God continues to be faithful to us and you know it just reminds me of what a privilege it is to to serve here and uh, how blessed we are um, to be a part of this body and just to watch what God has done and what he continues to do in this place and and, and I pray that we can always be faithful to that, just how he blesses us with resources and, and uh, you know, gives us ability to serve him in a marvelous way. So, again, I just want to say thank you to the praise team. That was really, really awesome. And just thank you for using your talents for the service of the Lord. Um, I also want to just take a minute, and Brett told me I wasn't supposed to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's, you know, I can. And uh, I just wanted to, I just want to come up here and give testimony as to how blessed we are with the pastors that we have in this place. Um, you know, Mark, they got a little time away with his family this weekend. And, you know, Brett's still here watching the fort. But hopefully, you know, just me being up here gives them a bit of a break. But uh, it gives me a, a great appreciation for what they do uh, day in and day out, week after week, in the way they break the word to us. And, you know, we, we have a scholar in Mark Toby. I don't know how many of you know that or really even appreciate it, but uh, uh, we really do. You know, that doesn't mean everything's always pretty, but a lot of times it means that we get presented messages that make us think a lot differently than what we're used to. Uh, drives us to a place where we have to consider where we really are before Christ. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to God for that. And, you know, I just want us to always be constantly aware of how blessed he, he really has um, provided in such a great way and then I, I think about Brett like I said he told me I couldn't say anything good about him but I mean the passion by which he opens the word and brings it and, and just the real kind of sense of wanting to, to to get the gospel in front of people that so desperately need to hear it I mean it's a uh, it's a tremendous gift that he has but I mean it's a it's a blessing to watch as well and uh, you know I tell people a lot I'll just tell a story about Brett, and it made me think, but I mean, back when we were getting ready to hire him, I can remember sitting in a room back there, myself and several other deacons and Mark, and we were sitting around and we were grilling him, and um, I think he could kind of sense my dogma on a particular subject when I asked him a question. I'm not going to tell you what it's about, we can talk about it later, but, you know, he, he thought for a moment, and uh, the thing that he told me was he said, you know, what I have to go by are the scriptures, and he said, that's my guide. And what they say is what I believe, and that's what I'll do. And, you know, I, I stepped back. I don't think he understood me, and I didn't understand him necessarily. But I just, I, I, after I walked away from that, I took a step back, and I said, all these things that I thought, you know, I had my own kind of idea about how things should be. But when you take a step back and you look at God's word and you let it speak to you and let it define what we should believe, that's what we need, and that's what we need to hear in this place. And, uh, you know, I say it jokingly, we, we didn't know what we were going to get when we got him. And probably of you, you know, a lot of you can probably say, yeah, you're right. You, you know, we didn't know, did we? But uh, when it comes to standing up here and delivering and breaking God's word to us, um, again, we are tremendously blessed in both these men. And just, you know, again, for all the folks that God has put in service in this place, um, you know, not only did they come and are willing to serve and have a heart for people, I mean, I just think of you know, Travis and Adam and AP and Matt, and, you know, the, the, 
the beauty of it is, is that they also have life partners that are as much part of their ministry as anybody else. You know, I mean, they're, they enable them to do what they do and they have such a heart for people just like the men that they're married to. And I'm, I'm grateful for it and I hope that you all are too. And um, we're going to take a few minutes and, and look at a, a, a passage in Luke chapter 7 today if you want to be turning there. Um, you know, I hope that everyone had a good Easter weekend. I don't know, how many of you ever listened to those, uh, I'm not going to tell any of them, but I mean, I just wonder how many of you listen, like I do sometimes, to these uh, kindergartners or elementary kids that they um, get up before a camera and they ask them to tell them, you know, what Easter's about and what that means. And very few of them, honestly, say anything that resembles the story about the resurrection, which many of us, obviously, we came last week with the thought and the idea that we're going to celebrate this resurrection of the risen Lord, you know, this Jesus that we serve. But it's just kind of funny. It gives you a pretty good reflection of where we're at in our thought as a society, you know, that Jesus has very little part to play in it for the most part. And, you know, and hopefully kind of as we think and consider about his word today, that we realize that, you know, we need to keep that in front of folks, let it drive what we do, let it be the very thing that gives us breath in the morning, that all that we do and say are with a mind that it's about the Lord. And I mean, you know, if we couldn't do anything else but to get up in the morning and to realize that this life we live is not about us, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. If we could start there every morning of our life, I think we'd have a head up and a leg up for the rest of our day to serve him and to give him honor in some way. So just something to consider. But let's turn to Luke chapter 7 and we'll, uh, we'll begin to look at this text. I'm going to read um, verses 36 through 50 and then go back and make a few comments about them and uh, maybe we can see ourselves someplace in this story and how we respond to Jesus. Verse 36, now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, is this, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teaser, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replies, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears. And wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Very interesting story, I think. 
you know, it's easy to read through that sometimes and just to kind of breeze by it and maybe not see the truth that's in there. Um, you know, we see the two primary characters that we're talking about this morning. Uh, the first being the Pharisee named Simon and the other being the sinful woman that was a part of this, uh, part of this story as well. The first thing I want to say, though, as we kind of frame how we'll view this as we read through is that while there was an encounter with Jesus in this particular story, what I'm more interested in is the responses that we see during this encounter that had to have been created or derived from a previous encounter. In other words, these two folks at some point in time had to have had an encounter with Jesus prior to this story to cause them to do what they did in the midst of it. Um, that's what kind of got me thinking a little more about just the response at this point, the very response of the story. But what happened prior to that? What happened in their encounters with Jesus? What happened that framed, you know, their thoughts and their, their desires or their perceptions of him that made them do what they did in the midst of Luke chapter 7? You know, in a lot of ways, you know, as we look at these two folks, you know, they're not much different in the ways they perceive Jesus and how they respond to him based on that, you know, than we are. And hopefully as we read through this, maybe we can see a few things that, you know, we can see ourselves in this story, I hope. Um, it's, it's interesting, again, like I say, to see just the contrast between a life, what I want to say is the life of the religious as opposed to the life of the redeemed, and, and that's kind of where we'll go this morning. Um, Let's start in verse 36, and we'll just we'll, we'll read it again and uh, uh, just take a bit of time at, in, uh, and talk about these particular verses. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Does that seem a little odd to you? I mean, we just, got, we just came out of Easter, and uh, I mean, were the Pharisees, were they happy to see Jesus around? Based on what you remember as we talked about the things that led up to his crucifixion. You think about the Jewish leaders. I mean, the Pharisees were this kind of sect of Jewish, um, the Jewish hierarchy. They were, they were all about the first five books of the law, you know, first five books of the Bible. They were very much, uh, if you want to say it, men of the law. You know, every, every jot and tittle, every, you know, every portion of it, and, and really how they perceived it and how it should be kind of um, expressed to the people. You know, they were concerned about following the law to the letter because in their minds and their hearts that's what was going to make them righteous with God um, that's what was going to make them you know in a place where they would be acceptable to God that somehow they would find favor with God just because they were so good at keeping the rules you know um, they were so good at following these guidelines that were set forth and you know so they were very a uh, very pious very religious very righteous group of people um, you know, I know in my experience in church, I've been in churches before where that seemed to be kind of the norm, where, you know, we were a pretty pious people. Um, you know, we kind of liked the way we looked and kind of felt like we had a, a kind of an inside track with God because we were, um, you know, we were so righteous. And, and I think anybody in here that's honest with themselves realizes that that's not very true, that there's not a one of us sitting in this place that's perfect and sinless. Uh, but not by a long shot. 
But here we see a person that thinks he is as opposed to a person who knows she isn't. And uh, that's, that's what's so interesting. You know, we talk about the Pharisees and just their, their desire. And I mean, I, I still have to ask, my question, you know, ask the question, why in the world did this guy invite Jesus to come? You know, we, we see that the Pharisees spent a lot of time. If you just turn back to Luke chapter 6, we see where Jesus was in the midst of this group of religious leaders. And he, and he heals a guy. And it happened to be on the Sabbath. You know, and they were like, you know, that really ticked them off. Because in their mind, Jesus had just violated a law uh, of working on the Sabbath. Back in Exodus chapter 35, verses 1 through 3, you know, the penalty for working on the Sabbath was death. You know, because you violated God's law, you violated his day of recon- you know, recognition and, you know, day of rest. And, and so they were, real, they were real bent on the fact that, you know, I mean, man, did you not see what he just did? I mean, I, I look back and I, I was thinking, how in the world can somebody not believe Jesus was who he said he was if they saw him perform a miracle? You know, and, and I, I said that one day to Buzz Page, and he told me, he said, man, said, people see miracles all the time. Still, you know, it's nothing new. They still don't believe. It doesn't matter if he does a miracle or not. They still do not believe. I mean, he can do a miracle, and two days later, you completely forget about it, and you stay right where you're at in your sin. I mean, I, you know, and that's probably could be, it could probably be said of us as well. When God has done something miraculous where he's done a, you know, a mighty work in your life, and a week later, you turn and kind of fall back into your old ways and you don't remember what he did, you know, as though that was going to be enough to keep you on this high plane of righteousness before him or that it some way would spur you on to, to live a better life before him. And, you know, just in our, you know, we're just thinking about Paul as he talked about how, you know, he always constantly was in this struggle of doing things that he didn't want to do, you know, and the tension that we live in is, human beings that there's always this law at work in us that there's a sinful nature at work in us and just the uh, the battle that it tends to be but here this Pharisee is and he's still you know I still can't help but think somehow why would he be any different than any of the rest of them why would he want to have dinner with Jesus if there wasn't some other motive involved um, you know we can look back at Mark chapter 12 where we talked about uh, some of the Pharisees were actually sent, they were commissioned to go and try to catch him in a, in a kind of this debate about whether or not they should pay taxes to Caesar, you know, whether or not they should be loyal to Caesar or loyal to God and try to get him into some sort of debate about that so they might be able to trap him. And, you know, obviously you all remember if you read your, your Bible and you've heard the story over and over that, you know, Jesus told him clearly, he said, you know, whose picture's on the coin? Well, it's Caesar's. Well, give it to Caesar then, it's his, you know, basically. And give to God what is God's. Um, you know, so they constantly had this kind of thing going where they wanted to get rid of him. You know, they, there were some things, that I guess, probably that seemed threatening to them. Whether it be just their kind of idea of, you know, what religion was all about. Their idea of what makes you right with God. Um, their idea of, you know, I don't know. Uh, if for some reason they had to believe a different way, then they no longer would have control over their righteousness with God. You know, the truth of the matter is, is none of us do. You know, we don't have control over that. You can't live a perfect enough life to be right with God. Um, you know, we think about this, maybe, you know, maybe this Pharisee invited him to dinner because he was maybe a little more like Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and Nicodemus went to Jesus at night. Uh, if we look back at John chapter 3, 
you know, I, I think generally because he had a desire to learn and understand the truth about Jesus. You know, he had a desire to, to see what it was that he was really talking about. You know, a desire maybe to make sure that he was thinking right in what he believed and how to be righteous before God. You know, so I think there was a, you know, there's an element here. Maybe, maybe this Pharisee and Simon, maybe the Pharisee in this story was, maybe he truly was looking and trying to find out what was right. It's a possibility. You know, the text really doesn't make it clear. You don't know for sure. But, you know, you can kind of look at further on that, that some of his actions would say that he really was a little bit more indifferent than anything about Jesus. You know, I just think about, I wonder, you know, I wonder if he was just thinking, that, hey, let's get this Jesus dude to come and hang out with us while we eat. It'd be kind of cool. It'd be fun. It'd be entertaining. You know what I mean? I wonder if, you know, I, I guarantee you, I know we think that. I've been around young people long enough to know that sometimes they'll, you know, they like to have a good laugh and get entertained, you know? What if we could get Jesus to come and sit down with us and break bread and we could talk and uh, it'd be cool, you know? I don't know. Maybe it's possible, I suppose. We, you know, the fact of the matter is, is we really don't know what his motives were. Other than to say, to me, it still seems a little bit crazy that he would, he would ask Jesus to come. Um, you know, but, but as I read that, it still led me back to kind of the idea of trying to figure out why he asked him. But beyond that, it led me back to, to ask the question, I wonder where he came across Jesus before. You know, what was the encounter that he had with Jesus before that he would even think about asking him to come now? Um, you know, was it, was it by word of mouth? Did he hear something kind of interesting about Jesus in his travels or as he talked to other Pharisees or other Jews or whatever about their interactions with him that kind of led him to a place where he wanted to invite him? Um, or, you know, did he hear him teach? I, I kind of tend to think that maybe he heard him actually live in, in person teach in one of the synagogues. Um, you know, maybe he heard something in one of those times of teaching that made him think that he needed to learn more. You know, again, it doesn't really say. You know, maybe he, maybe he had been one of those Pharisees that uh, was, was commissioned to go and ask him about the, the, the tribute to Caesar. Uh, you know, maybe he had first, first-hand experience with him in that process. You know, I don't know. Uh, but the thing that seems apparent to me in this is that he had some sort of encounter. He had some sort of um, interaction with another or with Jesus himself that brought him to a place where he wanted to invite him that day. And, uh, you know, it's just interesting because in that, in God's sovereignty and in his goodness... You know, he, as we read on, we see that he brought him to a place where, you know, Jesus could give another download of truth, that he could give him one more word that might draw him closer to a place where he could understand the truth about what it means to be righteous before God. Um, but in any case, I, again, I believe that he certainly had an encounter with Jesus before that time. Um, let's, let's take a second and just look at the second primary character, obviously the sinful woman that we see in this story. Look at Luke chapter 7 and we'll read verses 37 to 38. When a woman who had lived a simple life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. 
Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and put, uh, poured perfume on them. Man, what a, what a difference. You know, what a contrast in response. You know, one of just indifference or who knows, not real sure, to one of, wow, there's some depth, there's some heartfelt kind of conviction about this Jesus, you know, that drew her to that place, you know, and put her in a place where she was in the dirt, you know. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, as I read that, I had to ask my question, I had to ask the same question again, why in the world would she go to that place? You know, why in the world would she break the doorway, you know, and go into a place where, can you imagine, I mean, I, I just, I can imagine the scene already. You know, it's not like they didn't know who this woman was, you know, whether or not she was a prostitute or what her sin really was, you know, I'm sure that she was not highly, you know, um, favored among those people. I mean, obviously, you know, you already see that she was defined as a sinner. She somehow was, you know, less than the righteous. Um, but, you know, I, I, again, I think about what must have happened to her in, in an encounter she had with Jesus prior to that. She didn't just run in there and fall at his feet. You know, this is the first time she ever saw Jesus. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but I don't believe it did. Something happened prior to that time or she would not have responded that way. Something happened that made her move in such a way that was completely uncommon, um, that was so outside of herself that it could only have been from this encounter that she had with Jesus prior to that. You know, I mean, think about it for a second. What do you think happened when she walked through that door before she ever got to Jesus' feet? I mean, immediately, I can imagine that there were probably gasps in, you know, in the room. I can imagine that there are probably a couple people that were turned and talking to each other right away about, man, can you believe she just came here? Um, you know, who knows? I mean, I, I just, I can imagine it probably was a bit weird for everybody. Um, you know, it wasn't someplace, you know, it wasn't necessarily uncommon when, when someone would have in that culture a dinner party, let's say, and then a teacher would come and be at the table, even if you weren't necessarily an invited guest, it wasn't uncommon for someone to come through the door, you know, another, uh, uh, another Jew or, um, you know, maybe another acquaintance that wasn't necessarily personally invited at that time. They weren't necessarily sitting around the table, but it was okay for them to come through the door and to listen to what the teacher had to say. Uh, but I don't think that was the case with this woman by any means. Um, I don't think she would have sensed or felt, you know, any kind of extension of welcome to her at all. Um, you know, I just, I think about, you know, a lot of times when a woman will come into the door, I don't know, hopefully it's still this way, but, you know, if a man was sitting down and there weren't any other chairs, a man would jump up and say, hey, take my chair, you know. I don't think that happened with this lady. That probably wasn't even a glance by anyone by, like that, you know, to where they would honor her in any little bit of way like that. You know, she was totally outcast in that environment. Um, so, you know, when you think about that, how can you not ask the question, why in the world did she end up there? Other than the only explanation it can be is that because Jesus had done something in her heart that put her in a place where she wouldn't have been otherwise. Um, you know, 
this encounter that she must have had, it makes me wonder where it was at. Um, I mean, I can't imagine her gracing the doors of church, you know, the synagogue, going to the place of the righteous. I'm not sure she would have felt welcome there either. Um, I'm not sure that she would have sensed this open arm invitation to even be in that context. So I, I, I tend to believe that where she must have interacted with Jesus, where she must have heard the truth about who she is was maybe when Jesus was outside the town. You know, he, Matthew chapter 4 talks about how the people on both sides of Jordan, Jordan would follow him, you know, kind of in the hills and the hollows as he, as he taught. I mean, certainly he taught in the synagogues and he, and he taught to the righteous and the religious people, but he also talked to the people outside of that, those who ne- weren't necessarily um, righteous or weren't necessarily um, those that would even go into the synagogue but he was out there among the people and I can't help but think that maybe she was there when he taught um, you know maybe she was there when he when he gave the sermon on the mount you know and he talked about the truths of who he is and all that's in it and you go back and look at Matthew chapter 5 all the things that he talked about all the things that he taught in that place uh, maybe she was there when he performed a miracle he saw, he saw somebody miraculously get healed um you know that 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 put a dent in her heart made her think i'm wondering who is this guy really you know what is he here for but again no matter where it was or when it was i truly believe at some point she had an encounter with jesus that changed her life um in whatever context it was wherever that happened to be she encountered him in 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 a way where she saw her need for him Um, She encountered him in a way that now the burden of her sin and guilt before him was too much to bear. Somewhere in this process, Jesus brought her to a place where she understood her need for him. I mean, you know, again, I I can't help but go back to the thought of how many times we, we walk through a day of our life and we don't consider our need for Christ you know, not just in the way we carry out our daily life, the needs that we have. You know, again, you know, it's easy, and, and we see it a lot. You know, we see it on TV all the time with a lot of the, you know, a lot of the messages that are kind of presented, you know, that Jesus is here for us, that Jesus came. He did come for us, but the idea is he's not here just to make our lives easier. As a matter of fact, if we really, truly wanted to follow him, our lives in the, in, in, in the context this culture preaches would be vastly different than what we experience. If we truly live the lives that Christ called us to, it would look a lot different than what we see now. Not only in our church, but in our, in our personal lives. You know, I mean, that's a constant tension that I think about. I mean, I want, I want God to remind me every day that I need him a lot more outside of just what he gives us here in this place, the blessings of life that he gives us, but more than that, forgiveness for my sin. Um, not just at the time that he showed it to me the first day, but every day of my life. There's not one of us that walks around this world, you know, walks around this life that doesn't sin. Um, I mean, if you believe you're sinless, you need to take a look and think. Really consider Go back and read the Ten Commandments. You know, Jesus takes it. You know, you talk about the idea of not murdering. Jesus says if you have ought against your brother, you've sinned. If you think it in your mind, 
You know, adultery. It talks about if you have lustful thoughts towards a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart already and you're guilty before God. You don't have to act on it. If you think it, you're guilty. You know, people talk about how, you know, God, you know, they've never heard the, they've never heard the gospel. You know, God's word tells us that he gives evidence of himself even in creation, that we all stand guilty before him. You know, and, and if we don't get anything else out of the day except that we see that we are a guilty people before God and in desperate need of a Savior, then we miss the, we miss the message. I mean, it's simple. That's as simple as it gets. You know, we have got to be driven to that place where we remember we have nothing good to offer God. I mean, I, I see it all the time, it seems like. You know, we get pumped up about ourselves and all these things. You know, everything that we have that is good in this life came from our God. Everything good that anybody has in their life came from God, whether they believe in him or not. You know, we just choose to believe in him because we see the truth. You know, but let's not forget it. Let it drive you into places where you wouldn't normally go. I mean, that's, that's, that's the message of this life. Um, you know, again, we just talk about this lady. And I mean, it, it's, it's apparent that she embraced the message of John chapter 14, you know, where she realized that he was the way and he was the truth and he was the life and that there was no other way but him to be righteous before God. Um, you know, I just think about how she was moved, like I said, to go someplace where she wouldn't normally have gone. But also as you just watch her in that scene where she's knelt down and in the dirt, you know, wiping his feet with her tears the tears of a life of regret you know a life of sin you know remorse brokenness um, you know there she is in the dirt washing his feet you know God had this had brought her to a place this encounter with Jesus brought her to a place where the dirt didn't seem to matter anymore you know the dirt didn't matter it was secondary to what she felt like she needed to do to serve her Lord. So, I mean, I asked the same question to myself. I wonder how many times I've been unwilling to go to the dirt, you know, to get, you know, ministry's messy. Any of you that have spent time in church know that no matter what it is, it, it gets a little messy sometimes. You know, when you're interacting with folks that don't have any, rec any idea who God is and, you know, whether or not they they like you or not, in these kind of places that you end up going, you know, even as they start to come to church, sometimes it gets a little messy. It's just part of it. But I mean, as God's people, if he's really moved in our heart and we really understand who we are before him, he will take us to a place where getting dirty won't matter so much anymore. You know, and I have to say, I give testimony to this, this fact is that I spent a lot of years in church where it seemed like we spent a lot of time doing everything we could not to get dirty. That we spent a lot of time building walls and a refuge for the righteous to come and to find this place where we can keep ourselves and our families safe. And, uh, you know, that's what church was about. It wasn't really about going out and, and, and being willing to get dirty, um, being willing to speak truth into the life of someone that you normally would never speak to unless you made an effort to do it. You made... Uh, um, you listen to what God has told us to do. He's told us to go and make disciples of all people. 
You know, you can't do that when you build the walls around a place and hope that you're going to be safe for the rest of your time on this earth. The fact of the matter is, and I was telling, I, I told him this morning that Greg uh, Starkey and I were talking last week, and we were just talking about the world and all these debates that go on. And, you know, you can look at the political atmosphere of our country right now, and you can just see all the social issues that are at hand and they're debating. You know, the fact of the matter is, is things aren't getting any better. You know, we are on a, a pretty slippery slope, and our thought and concern about what God wants for this country is, is, is declining quickly. You know, and I think the fact of the matter is, is that we, we're not going to see a country get any better. We're going to get further and further and further as a culture away from God. Now, that's not to say, again, I, I said it this morning, it's not to say that God couldn't bring a revival in this place that, you know, he could turn it. I'm not saying he couldn't. It's in his time. It's in his hands. But as I look at it, what I'm beginning to realize is that the only way we can find joy, peace, hope, anything in this life is in our service to Christ. We can't do it by trying to build walls around ourselves and keep ourselves safe because it ain't going to happen. We're not going to be, someday we're not going to be safe in this place. You know, and if, if we want protection, it's going to be the protection that Christ offers as we serve him. You know, it may, he may take us to our death in doing that. But ultimately, you know, we're going to find our peace. We're going to find our hope. We're going to find everything that we are and that brings joy in this life. It's going to come from serving him because it's certainly not going to come because our country is going to turn and start doing better, you know, and then everything is going to be good for us as Christians and everybody's going to believe like we do. I mean, I, I, I battle and struggle constantly with this idea of how we speak truth into our culture. You know, I spent a lot of years watching people get up and just, man, man, they're ready to slug it out. Talk about how we need to get this place cleaned up, you know, more from an aspect of how they want to live, you know, a safer kind of cleaner life and that we all need to do that. It's something more about them than it is about changing the heart of a person. So as we speak into our culture, you know, where are we going to spend our time and our money? Are we going to invest in the hearts of people? You know, I spent a lot of time watching people concerned about behavior less than they were concerned about the heart. If we could get everybody just to act right, we really didn't care about their heart. But we're really not, to, you know, really not ready to make the investments that we need to to go to the dirty places so that maybe somebody could hear the gospel and their heart could be changed. And then God could teach them how to live, you know. We can try, but unless their heart changes, they're not going to live like we do. And so as I look at this, I look at this Pharisee who, in my mind, certainly had that mindset. You know, his thought was, is we all need to follow the law. And, you know, he couldn't see the truth about what Jesus was trying to tell him. We're about out of time. I just, uh, six things I want to just kind of share with you about um, typical responses. And I'm going to say again, three of them are what I would say would be the responses of the religious that we can find in this story. There's a lot more there that we could talk about. But for the sake of time, we'll just look at the three responses of the religious and then the three responses of the redeemed. Uh, the first one is, is that as we look, Luke chapter 736, we look about, um, you know, a lot of times we look at the religious and it seems like we can, we do a pretty good service to ourselves while we get in these groups and we talk about a lot of stuff but the first point is if we talk about Jesus among our peers as a point of interest as long as it amuses or appeases somehow but doesn't really push us to a place where we got to really make an investment in something you know that's a typical response we'll hear something we'll talk a lot about it we'll congregate together and you know we'll spend some time thinking it over maybe but when you really get to the point of putting some feet to it and going out and going someplace where it might be dirty might be uncomfortable you know, we don't get there 
for some reason. You know, but something, again, to keep us in tension, to let the Holy Spirit, if he puts something on your heart and tells you to go someplace, to become a people that will be ready to do it and to step out and go where he tells us to go. Next thing, next response of the, the religious, he, we uh, expect Jesus to fit in our expectations and perceptions rather than accept what he says about himself. You know, I mentioned this morning, you know, Jesus says he's Lord. You know, he's God in the flesh. You know, he came to consume our lives. He wants us. We're his. We're bought with a price. You know, do we really believe that? Because if we did, it would change the way we live. You know, again, you, it's easy to compartmentalize. I see a lot of the religious compartmentalize this, this idea that, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm a Christian on Sunday morning, Monday, Monday when I get to school or when I get to work or wherever it is that God takes me, then I don't have to be a Christian anymore, you know. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you were bought with a price, then you are fully responsible to Christ. You're fully his. Everything that you do and say will somehow lead to him. You know, you live a life that's not about you. You live a life that's about him and everything that you do. It doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter where God sends you. It doesn't matter the context by which you interact with people. Everything that you do and say will somehow point them to him because you belong to him. He's your king. So we, we you know, again, a lot of times we, we'd rather him just kind of fit into what we think and what we understand about religion, what it should look like, and not necessarily fully embrace what he calls us to. Uh, another response is we're not willing to extend him what is common to others. As we looked in the story a little earlier, even the common things were not extended to Christ. You know, water to wash his feet, you know. There was a real indifference about him. And I, I just think about how much time we spend doing, uh, doing things that are not beneficial to the kingdom of Christ. I mean, we spend a lot of time watching TV. We spend a lot of time watching sports. I mean, I'm guilty of it just like anybody else is. But I, I got to thinking, and, and you know, we kind of put Jesus in that place. We make a little time for him now and then. You know, is that what he calls us to? It certainly is not. You know, and again, it's a message to remember that he calls us to something much more, that everything that we do, everywhere we spend our time, uh, it should be his. Okay, and then just three responses of the redeemed. We go into places that are uncomfortable. We, we saw that in that woman, that she was, you know, and I just think about the folks here that, uh, you know, the trips, the many trips have been made to Haiti and, uh, you know, every morning when the bus runs and, you know, we go places where, you know, we wouldn't normally go if it hadn't have been for what happened to us and what happened into our heart. What happened to our heart when we had that redemptive encounter with Christ? You know, we talk about we just watched the lady, the sinful woman, willing to get dirty. You know, a mark of the redeemed is that we are willing to get dirty in His service. You know, whatever that looks like, whatever that means, if it means going in, you know, speaking truth into the life of a couple that you know are in the midst of a turmoil. You know, and be willing to go. And, you know, it's easy to retreat and to say, nobody wants to get in the middle of confrontation. I hate it, you know. I hate to go someplace where maybe I can speak a word of truth to someone. You know, maybe they'll receive it, maybe they won't. But in any of that, you get in the middle of something and you find tension, you find turmoil, you find strife. And, you know, it's messy, it's dirty. You know, but God calls us to be a voice of truth in our culture and to be willing to go places, you know, even where it's not comfortable where it's dirty, um, where it doesn't look like what we're used to. Because I guarantee you, 
most of the places we go outside of here is not going to look like what we're used to or what we desire as we think about our lives before Christ. You know, what we're going to see is a world full of people that need to know the truth and, and for us to rise up and be willing to, to give it. Um, and then we think about the redeemed will spend what they have to serve him and those around him. Um, you know, I, I think about this a lot. You know, I was thinking the other day, you know, you just think about a tithe, giving money to the church. You know, I wonder how many times we sit down and we get ready to write our check and we wonder, what else could I do with this money? You know, my kids will tell you, said, we we'll always talk about having a boat, but we never had one, you know. I'm kind of getting to a place in my life now where a motorcycle doesn't sound too bad, but I probably will never have one. But, you know, just the thought of, wow, we could, we could, give, we could spend a lot of money doing a lot of things. But the, the truth of the matter is, is, you know, we need to be laying our treasure up in a place where it can't decay. You know, God blesses us with affluence in this country beyond measure. You know, and, and I, I joke with Greg. Greg led our small group last night. It was on chapter 6 of the book that we're in, and it was a pretty difficult chapter. Um, he reminded me of that this morning, as a matter of fact. But th- I think the title of the chapter is, How Much is Enough? And just this whole kind of tension that's created by the thought of how well God has blessed us in this country and as Christians, and how much do we really need, and how much do we fall into this thought that the more we get, the more we can give our kids, you know, the more places we can go and experiences we can give them, somehow we're doing a service to them as opposed to taking that fund, those funds, and, and, and investing in, in, in someone who needs desperately, uh, you know, even something to eat tomorrow night, you know. There's a tension there. You know, God says the poor will always be with us. That's true. But, you know, how much are we willing to invest to speak into that, to give ourselves a, maybe an avenue to go into a home, you know, with food to help them, but at the same time, we can give them the gospel. We can give them the truth about what we really will, give them peace and joy and, and bread for life, you know, but being willing to do that and to give, to understand that godliness with contentment is great gain. Um, you know, riches are not gain in God's world. So we'll leave it at that, and um, just some things to consider. Um, you know, bottom line is, what is it going to take for us to get? You know, what is it going to take for us to be moved? What is it going to?